Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. This is a very significant message in my life, but I could say that about every message. If it wasn't, I probably wouldn't be given it. Okay, let's just uh, summarize it that way. Made strong. I like it. You see, I almost titled this Out of Weakness. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to hide that for a bit, and I'm going to emphasize this, and that's made strong. Every single one of us wants to be made strong. And yet, there's this little caveat, and I've already given it away in my previous title option, and that was out of weakness. You see, we want the strength, but we don't want the weakness. However, in God's economy, if you don't embrace the weakness, you don't get the strength. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the great mystery of strength in the Bible. And you're also going to see at the same time why many of you struggle without having strength, and you you feel weak. And yet you've been a Christian for many years. Why is it that you're still weak? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you've rejected or strategically attempting to avoid that which is within this message. It's so clear in Scripture where strength comes from. And we read it. We even know the Scriptures. We still want it on our terms. We want to be strong our way. Pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Exert that which we have because we are something. We have what is necessary, don't we? You can be successful in business that way. You can't be successful in the kingdom of heaven that way. You can be successful in sports that way. You cannot be successful in the kingdom of heaven that way. You can be successful in all sorts of interesting dimensions of life by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and exerting that which you natively have. But you cannot be successful in the kingdom of heaven in what you naturally have. You need something outside of you in order to be strong, and that takes humility to acknowledge. I have it myself. That's what humanitarianism is, by the way. It is a defiance that we need God's rescue. Humanitarianism is everyone in humanity bonding together, banding together, standing shoulder to shoulder and saying, see, we can save humanity without divine aid what it is. That's what humanitarianism is, it is. That's why we as Christians aren't humanitarianism, aren't humanitarians. We're Christians. That's what we are. We're Christians. What does Christianity denote? We cannot do it without divine aid. That's our declaration. Hey world, I acknowledge that I cannot do what God has commissioned me to do without divine aid. I have no righteousness of my own. I cannot be as I ought to be without divine aid. So, made strong. This is the secret to being made strong, which is what we do at Ellerslie. That's our entire premise point, is being made strong. Why? To be spent, to be poured out. That's our premise point. That's what we're after in Basic Discipleship 101. We need to get past our issues. We have issues, and our issues are curtailing our ability to be strong for others. We can't even be strong for our own soul, let alone our marriages, let alone our children, let alone a dying world out there. And yet we esteem good doctrine, we believe in the Bible, we know Jesus is there, but our lives are weak. 
Christianity is about men and women who are weak being made strong so that they have the wherewithal, the strength that is imparted to them from heaven to be able to give and to serve and to lay down their life to see others that are weak made strong. And then we continue the process. And weak is becoming strong in Christ, not in their own willpower, grit, and determination. So just in case you're wondering where the title comes from, I figured I'd give you a little background. In Hebrews 11, now Hebrews 11 is quite the chapter. It's the famous chapter on faith. So it's going through the history of, uh, of, of Israel and, and the mighty men of faith in it. And so we get to a certain point in verse 32 where it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and of Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms. So when we're talking about being made strong here, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. I mean, that's some epic Hollywood adventure. No, that's, that's faith. That's what faith leads to. It leads to a super triumphant existence. So this is where the title came from. However, you're going to notice that something's wrong with the grammar here. The way that it unfolds in the King James doesn't actually flow grammatically. It says, who through faith out of weakness were made strong. And so technically, the way it should grammatically flow is this, which is how it says it in the ESV. Who through faith were made strong out of weakness. That's easier for our mind to understand. But it's through faith. It's not just that they were made strong out of weakness. You have to take it in the context. This is a sentence which is going through and says, who through faith did all these things. And one of the things that they did were made strong out of weakness. It's a very critical theme in the Bible, not just in this scripture. All throughout the Bible, this is a theme, as you will see today. Who through faith were made strong out of weakness. Faith, they turned their confidence on God. Their confidence wasn't in themselves. Most of us have confidence in ourselves, and we can't figure out why we can't make our life work. And we're looking inward to find the answer. It's like, come on, buddy. Get strong. Grit your teeth. You can do this. We give lectures to ourselves, and it doesn't work. Or we look at all that the enemy has put out, all the counterfeits. It's like, if you just take the right medicine, that will solve this. If you just go to the right school, that will solve this. If you just had more money, that would solve this. You see, we're looking to be made strong out of a counterfeit. But we must become weak, turn our eyes upon the true source of strength, and say, I can't do it, but you can. And out of weakness are made strong. So here's a hymn. Now you notice I don't give a lot of hymns in my messages, but I'm literally going to read a hymn. This is a good hymn. This is Take My Life and Let It Be by Francis Ridley Havergill. Take my life and let it be, consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. What you're going to notice as we go through this is the statement of what's called consecration. It's being set apart unto God. This, as I'm going to present to you through this message, is the secret to strength. And yet it's the essence of weakness. You're making yourself vulnerable. You're giving up. You're not taking. And most of us look at taking as the source of strength. 
If someone gives you 10 bucks, you hold it away, and then you get 10 more, you hold it away, and then you have strength. Why? Because you have a defense against poverty. You have your resource. That's not how strength works. You get $10, you give $10. You become a flow-through channel for the endless supply of God. You never run out. Why? Because your confidence isn't what you have. Your little $10, your confidence is this unlimited resource. It's in faith that you are made strong out of weakness. You may not have anything in your hand, and yet you have confidence that you have 10 trillions available to you at any moment for whatever God commissions you to. Big difference between the two. When you measure your own strength, 10, 10, $10, stick it over here. Oh, no, I have another $10. I need to be stronger. $10. Well, then guess what happens? A little wind blows up, knocks over your little uh, bank depository, and carries it all away. What happened to my strength? It's not real strength. It's false strength, and in the day of testing, God will prove that. This is not what you can rely on. I know the world tells you that you can rely on it. Some of you put all your confidence in the American economic system. And as a result, when we start to go on hard times, what happens to you? Oh, no. Oh, no, my system of support is under, being undermined. Hey, be a Christian. Your system of support is in Jesus Christ, not in the systems of this world. That will fail you. God promises you that. Your confidence must be in Jesus Christ, who will not move, who will not be shaken, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going anywhere. He's stable. His investment, you invest in him, you have stock in him, guess what? It never fails. It only goes up. It's the right place to invest your life. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. The puddle principle. How many of you have ever heard me share the puddle principle? One? Okay. Uh, obviously, I've not shared the puddle principle very often here at Ellerslie. I don't know that I've ever called it that. So some of you would have to think creatively when you're hearing me go, have I? I don't know. Uh, so look at the subtitle. Giving up the little in order to prove the more. The puddle principle took place. You know, Mike and Krista Hahn live right down the street here in a house we used to live in. And so it took place in the driveway of technically Mike and Krista Hahn's house. And so I'm at the top of the driveway, and I have my mower here, and I'm getting ready to mow the lawn and, you know, ready to pull the, you know, the starter. And I look over at my Montero, uh, and the tires are balding. Uh, it's just, a, it's a bad state of affairs on the, on the car. And I have, okay, in my mind, you see, you have to realize, as a man, I want my family to be secure. And so I don't want balding tires, on my other car, I had balding tires. So I could say less to Leslie, take the kids in my car because your car has balding tires. But I couldn't say that. I was in a really bad situation, and our finances were such that I had no excess. And tires are just not the thing that any of us want to spend on. I don't know about you, but there's romantic things you can spend on in life, like an iPhone or something like that. You take it home, you can you know, do things on it and get this you know, glee Tires, there's no delight. It's rubber, okay? And it's black rubber. It's just boring. There's nothing exciting about it. It's nice to have healthy, good tires on your car, but you know what? If you're going to spend money, you don't want it to be on tires. 
And so I was in a bad strait, uh, and I remember having a discussion because I want to be a protector of my home and I want to provide. So it was sort of like, God, could you supply for my tires? I need money for tires. And so sitting there at the mower and getting ready to do the pull, and God had a little conversation with me. Well, Eric, I have supplied money for your tires. And so I know, I'm a mathematical guy, so I know what's in my bank account. And so I'm saying to God, it's like, no, no, I don't have what is needed for tires. You see, I had money in my account, but in my mind, that money was already allocated. It was already given. I, it was, there were bills coming up that, had, that needed that money to pay it. And so in my mind, I've already spent that money. It's there, sure, okay, but I don't have access to it. And God's sort of, in our conversation, was like, do you have the money or not, Eric? Well, I do have the money technically. Okay, but that's just technically, God. You see, that money is needed for these future bills. So, yes, all right, I'll admit that I have the money, but I need more money. (laughs) So the puddle principle. This is what I saw, even when I was standing in the driveway that day. I'm looking at a little puddle of water, and I need water. And if you ask me, is there enough water to deal with what I need and what I will need, what I need now and what I will need in the future, there's not enough in that puddle. And God's basically speaking to me in this situation, but I've given you this. And you want the puddle to just get bigger, but I'm saying I've given you this. Do you trust me, Eric, that beneath that puddle, though you can't see it in the natural, is a bottomless aquifer? And if you will trust me and take from that which I supplied for you and do that which you know to do, which in this case is protect your family, buddy. Take care of the tires. It's okay. I've given you the money. You have it, Eric. But then I won't have money to pay the bill. Who says? Who's telling you that? Do you trust that I know your needs, Eric? And that as you do the next thing of obedience and as you live in faith, that puddle will always refill and you will have that which you need for life and godliness. Well, that's an interesting test for Eric. You know what I did? I went out and got tires. Very unromantic. But I bought tires. And it did empty my bank account. And guess what happened? Bloop. God filled in the puddle. You know what? I've seen the puddle principle over and over and over and over again in my life. I don't live high on the hog. However, I do feel like I do. In a sense, though I don't have a big bank account with endless supply to draw from, he has an endless bank account. He has given me a credit line and access to everything I will need. Not all the things I want, but everything I will need is just available in Christ Jesus. But it's hard for many of us to take from the puddle. We want the puddle to get big before we give from our puddle. It's like, if you just make the puddle more like a lake, then I'll feel comfortable getting the tires. And God says, will you trust me with what the little you have and walk in obedience? Well, then the puddle will go away. Do you trust me that I made the puddle in the first place? I'm the origin of puddles. He's an aquifer. If you don't know what an aquifer is, like a big ocean underneath the, the land. You can't see it with your eyes, but it's there. And it's supplying to the puddle. It feeds the puddle. And the puddle, God makes puddles small on purpose, so we live by faith. If we saw the bottomless aquifer, if we saw it and lived in it, we're swimming in it, well, guess what? We would never 
could be concerned about ever having needs. We have him. And that's what faith is. It's swimming in the aquifer. God takes us by the hand and says, come on, get past this natural realm. Come down under the earth and watch you swim with me for a while in the aquifer. All right, now that you're fully soaked in me, go live your life and know that that puddle is sufficient for today. And everything you will need for tomorrow will be there. Do you trust the living God? That puddle is weakness. Everyone else has lakes and oceans of supply and resources. And you're like, if I was only like them. You have more. You have a puddle. You're like, what? That doesn't sound like more. They don't have an aquifer. Theirs will pass away in a time of drought. You know what will happen to their lake? Their brook will dry up. Yours never will. It's beneath the surface. It's in Christ. It's held firmly by him. It doesn't matter what comes against it. It will never dry up. You have more in your weakness. They just don't understand how an aquifer works. The puddle principle, giving up the little in order to prove the more. The gospel exchange, giving up the little in order to gain the more. This is really interesting, but the gospel, the biblical framework of how the kingdom of heaven works, demands everything. Everything. But I want you to realize when we come to Jesus and he says, I need your everything. And we're like, everything? Can you define everything? What does that mean, everything? Well, actually, it means everything. But most of us focus on that which we're giving up. We're like, oh, woe is me. God is so unjust. He's asking for everything. Do you know what God gives you? You get, well, We always use this illustration. You have a little pile of pebbles, a handful of pebbles, and you're all concerned that God's asking for them. It's like, hey, that's my everything. That's all I have. Yeah, and it's worthless. And as long as you hold on to it, you cannot have the things of heaven. Give up that which you're grip is upon so that you can be freed to enjoy the bounty of heaven. So look at these stories. The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which when a man is found, he hides and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now let's examine this story. The man sold all he had. That's where most of us trip. We're like, what? Sold all? Oh, too much. I can't do that. What, what happened with what he sold? He bought the field. He got the treasure. Hey, hey, Christians, wake up. You get Jesus. And you're like, I am, yeah, but Jesus just doesn't satisfy me like all my things do. You obviously have never met Jesus. When you know Jesus, you understand you sell all to get him. Everything to have what he has, only he can offer. You get life. You get him. You get his presence in every day. But most of us are trying to hold on to our life. But to find life, we must give it up. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, the man sold everything, right? But what does he end up with? A pearl of great price. Okay, did he end up with nothing? Is he just a beggar on the streets? No, he has a pearl of great price. The world may not esteem it. They may not esteem your aquifer. You gave up the ocean to get this little puddle. And they're like, what did you do? What a waste of a life. And you're like, treasure in your puddle. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've given me. Because you see beyond what everyone else sees. You see the ocean, the vast bottomless ocean of grace that is in Jesus Christ. Nardos, here's our Greek word. Well, actually, I have two Greek words for you. It's 
Sort of a funny one, isn't it? That's sort of like a put-down. If you're going to really pick on someone, you go, hey, you're a Nardos. Uh, and some of you are like, hey, was he serious? Well, it was actually a wonderful thing, even though it doesn't sound like it. Nard. It's never been one of my favorite words, nard. It sounds like lard. I think that's probably why. But nard, the head or spike of a fragrant East Indian plant which yields a juice of delicious odor, which the ancients used, either pure or mixed, in the preparation of a most precious ointment, typically known as spike nard. Okay, that's what most of us probably have heard about is spike nard, which is the ointment or the perfume, depends on how you word it. Ointment sounds like something you stick on a wound, which it was, but it was also a perfume. It had an amazing odor to it. And so this is spike nard. When Mary of Bethany came before Jesus, before his, uh, his death, she anointed him, and she broke open an alabaster box of this stuff. Nardos is what it's called in the Greek. And here's the word that is associated with it, which is really strange. When spike nard or nardos is mentioned in the text, there's another Greek word that is given right next to it. It's called pistikos which means having the power of persuading, skillful in producing belief, trusty, faithful, that which can be relied on, the object of trust. You see, if you know your Greek, then pistis, that's faith. This is pistikos. This is the object of faith, that which you trust in. Most of us trust in an alabaster box of nardos. You see, it's worth a year's wages. If you've ever studied the story, this is worth a lot. And If ever you fall on hard times, what can you turn to? Your box of Nardos. You have it just sort of sitting there as an insurance policy. And what is the gospel? The gospel puts its finger on your box of Nardos. and says, "Uh, what's in there? Oh, nothing. Just, you know, just, just a box. You know exactly what's in there. It's your insurance policy. It's that which you have faith in. It's the object of your trust. So if someone were to ask you, so where does your confidence lie if things really go bad? Where does your confidence lie? And you're like, oh, in Jesus, but where is it lying? It's lying in your box of Nardos. You see, if you're honest, and God's able to cut through the fog and all the ridiculousness that we spit out there, our religious gibberish, cut down to the quick. It's because we have a box of Nardos. If we ever get into a bad situation, we start selling our Nardos. What does Jesus ask us to do with our nardos? All right, let's read the story. Mark 14. Now, there's two stories that share the same thing, except for one involves anointing a head and one involves anointing at feet. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of the unleavened bread. Jesus is about to be crucified. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, let there, lest there be an uproar of the people and being in Bethany. And, so, and being in Bethany in the house of Simon, the leper, as he sat at meat, which means eating, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard. Now, when it says spikenard, in the Greek, it's two Greek words, which are nardos and pastikos. For some reason, it doesn't translate pastikos in any of our Bibles. It just says spikenard. But what it actually is saying is the spike nard, which was the object of her trust. That's what it's saying. But for whatever reason, that doesn't get translated, okay? But that's what it means. So this woman has having an alabaster box of ointment of spike nard, which is the object of her trust, and it was very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. 
And there were some that had indignation within themselves. The same with you. If you pour out your spikenard, if you give up your ocean for a little puddle, what's everyone going to say around you? What a waste. What did you do? You're giving away everything for what? There were some that had indignations within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her, which in a different uh, version of this, and if you're going to look at the, I think, I don't know if it's a Luke version, it actually says it was Judas that said that. And he intended, he was the one that kept the money, and he wanted the money for himself. We get a little more insight into it. And they murmured against her, and Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble you her? She has wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will have, whensoever you will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. She has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Listen to this. Just in case you're wondering about the significance of this story, the fact that it's in the Bible is significant enough, but listen to this. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Okay, so this isn't a small story. This is literally the gospel. This is an enunciation of the gospel. You're giving up everything to get what? Jesus. Everything. You give up everything, but what do you get? More than everything. It's sort of hard to describe what kind of trade-off this is. But when you behold the treasure, when you behold the goodly pearl, what do you do? Well, scrap this. That's nothing. That's, according to Paul, dung compared to this. Don't focus on this. Don't put your confidence in this. This will save you. This can't save you. This can save you. This is life. This is everything that would satisfy everything. But you have to sell all. You have to give it up. You have to let go of it to get this. You turn your back. It's called repentance. You turn on this way of living. You turn on your spikenard. Your spikenard and you have always been chums. And your spikenard whispers sweet nothings in your ear. I'm here for you. I love you. I will always stand with you. I will cherish you. What do you do? You say, I have no other lovers. No other things that I'll put my confidence in. And she breaks the box of spikenard who is worth a year's wages. No, 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 no. Don't. Oh, no. She just poured the whole thing out on his feet. Oh, no. Uh-huh. That's the gospel. And what's the world saying? Oh, no. What do some of your parents say? Oh, no. What a waste. They had so, many, so much hope for them. You just gave your life to everything that is truly valuable. And most people around us don't understand it. But this is Christianity. And this is literally the message that's supposed to be shared when the gospel is presented. Now, look what happens. Look at this little caveat in the context. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. What? You know that's in the context of this? Why? The gospel is an offense. It cuts down to the quick. What was his confidence in? His money. And so when he saw this waste, it offended him. It offended him. It drove the nail into his decisions. That's it. And he got up and he went to the chief priests. Isn't that amazing? This is a dividing point. 
You're either in or you're out. If you want Christianity on your terms, with your wealth, with your security, you don't have Jesus. He's your security. He's your life. He's your salvation. You cannot find it anywhere else. And God must test this point in us. God's not against you having money. He's not against you having a house. He's not against you having a car. But if you put your confidence in those things, then those things stand between you and your God. Your confidence must be in Jesus. And if all the world is stripped from you, if they throw you into a prison cell, they freeze your accounts, you lose your house, you lose your car because of your stand for Jesus, where do you stand? How are you doing inside? What's your soul proclaiming? Are you sound? Are you stable in Jesus? Or are you a wreck? Where does your confidence lie? Because that day will test it. You might as well just come to that day today. Just allow it to go today. Therefore, you can have a house, but your house doesn't have you. You can have resources, but your resources don't have you. Jesus has you. You are, a master, you are mastered by one thing, and it shouldn't be this. It needs to be Jesus Christ. The widow's opportunity. Strength proven through greatest weakness. There's a few strategic stories in the Bible that enunciate this. And what's interesting is they utilize widows. God literally picks widows to enunciate it. Now, can you think of anyone weaker than a widow? She's elderly. She's frail. She's fragile. And a widow in the Hebrew culture oftentimes was destitute. She didn't have a way of bringing in an income. Her husband had passed, and she was vulnerable, which is why God says for us to remember the widow and the orphan, the most vulnerable of all people in any culture. And so what God uses is he takes the picture of a widow. And I want you to realize as we go through this, you are the widow. You see, you just don't know it, but you are destitute without hope in this world. You have no means of saving yourself. You're withering away without any type of advocate to come alongside and lift you up. And that's where the good news comes in. See, so this widow, I know we don't typically identify with the widow, but I want you to realize what these stories proclaim. It's really interesting. The widow's opportunity. Now, I could have called this the widow's test or the widow's trial, but I chose a different word. See, most of us when we're going through school don't look at tests as an opportunity. You know, we get mad at tests. Like, oh, I hate tests. That's because we're usually not prepared for them. You know that if you're prepared for a test, tests are... Have you ever had those kids in school, too? That I was like, oh, good, it's a test? You're like, Ugh. Yeah, it's those kids, all right? Well, that's, that's what we're supposed to be as Christians. We smile at tests. Thank you, Jesus. This is an opportunity to show your glory, to show the work that you've been working in me, to show that I have grace this is an opportunity. So instead of calling it the widow's test, this is the widow's opportunity. Strength proven through greatest weakness. Now before I get into the widow's stuff, I want to just layer this with 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said unto me, this is God speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. Now Charles Spurgeon, when he was describing this sentence, said that's like a little fishy asking if there's enough water in the ocean. And God says, yes, little fishy, my water in the ocean is sufficient for you. You'll never run out. And so that was Charles Spurgeon's way of describing the grace of God that is made bountifully available to us. It's like a little one of us saying, but God, do you have grace for this? He says, yes, little fishy. My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He suddenly realized, when I have weakness, that's the opportunity for the power of Christ to showcase itself. When my puddle looks like it's getting low, guess what? That's the opportunity for the strength of Christ to bubble up and to prove to the world that God rules in the affairs of men. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you just hear that last line? Do I need to read it again? Because some of you just heard this statement too many times that you blur over. Oh, yeah, I know that. I memorized that. Well, then start thinking about it and living it. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We want to solve our weakness. We don't want to be weak. Are you ready to embrace your weakness and to recognize, look, this is actually the stage. My weakness is the stage upon which God shows his strength. And I'm not talking about sexual weakness. I'm not talking about frailty of morality. That's not the weakness we're talking about. We're talking about physical straits and difficulties that, that announce I can't do it. I need a rescuer. I am unable. I'm a widow. I do not have an advocate. I need help. Where is my intercessor? It's when you are weak that God's strength is made manifest. And so we actually cherish this. All right. Now we're going to go back in time. Not that that wasn't back in time, but now we're going to go way back in time to the days of Elijah. Elijah, a few weeks ago, I talked about him praying for rain to return. Now it hadn't rained in Israel for three and a half years. And so we have not just drought. We had drought here in Colorado, and it was bad. And as a result, we had fires all over the, along the, the, the foothills and in the mountains. I mean, it was, it was terrible, right? But this is three and a half years. Almost all the cattle in a country have died of starvation. They have nothing to feed them. Those that are grazing animals, there's nothing to graze upon. Everything's just dead. I mean, this is absolute disaster in a country. When you lose rain, you lose life. And so... Right back in the beginning of this, because we, we focus on the fact that Elijah prayed for rain to return. Now I want to go right back to the beginning of it when he actually declared that the rain would cease. He didn't say how long. He just said it will cease. And we will not have rain here in Israel. It's a judgment upon this nation. Ahab had gone counter. Was worshiping Baal and building groves. I mean, he was literally counter. He said what he did was worse than all the kings before him. Okay, so God says, no more rain. And it was a judgment upon the people and upon the land. So Elijah actually is called of God to a brook. And he's fed by a raven and by the water in a brook. A raven literally would bring him meat every day. Uh Uh-huh, it happened. And then the brook dries up. Uh, Oh, no, God. You see, we prayed for rain, and now the brook just dried up. What are we going to do? Oh, no, I'm going to die. No, 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 no. God's in control. God has his man. Though there be drought for the rest of the world, there is not drought for the children of God. So here we have Elijah who's being led by God. And where does God tell him to go? To a widow. Okay, now, let's read the story. This is so utterly ridiculous. Out of all the places to go, he sends him to a widow. This widow will supply for you. By the way, the widow had nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, 
I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. What kind of plan is that? God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is going to pick the poorest of all and say, it'll be her that sustains you. I've commanded her to do it. Could you imagine the woman going, all righty then. So I'm commanded to sustain someone, but I can't even sustain my own life. So he arose, speaking of Elijah, and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, listen to this. This is so audacious. Because I feel very uncomfortable socially in this scene. Okay, this prophet comes up, who's been eating fine, by the way, and been drinking fine for, you know, this past, I don't know how long. And then he comes strolling in and commands a widow, uh, please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. Uh, Buddy, we're in the midst of a drought. Okay, water is a precious commodity right now, and you are commanding a widow to give of the little water she has left to you. Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. Now, okay, I just need to prepare you. You're the widow in this scene. You're the weak one in this scene. And God is coming to you. And what does he say? Uh, Could I have a little water in a cup, please? Could I have uh, the water in your puddle, please? Uh, that's That's sort of all I have. Can I have a little water, please? What's God gonna do? He's gonna prove the miraculous in and through the obedience of someone in their weakness. Okay, watch this story unfold. Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said this. I, I'm already awkward, you know, in this scene. Like, ah, eesh, ah. Elijah, no, I don't know if anyone ever taught you courtesy and any basic, you know, social etiquette. This is a massive violation of it. He says, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. Only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar. This is me talking. Eric, put new tires on your car. God, I don't have what I need to supply it. So here's what she says. I don't have bread. All I have is a little handful of meal and some oil. She has what she needs to make bread. But listen to this. And see, I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. They have nothing more. It'll be their last meal. They're going to eat it. So she has sticks. She's going to prepare a little fire, cook a little bread, and die. She has nothing left. This is the end of her supply. And guess who comes strolling into town? Uh, Give me the water. Give me that water. And yes, could I have some bread? Bring me some bread. Uh, I don't have bread. All I have is one little helping of meal and oil to make my last thing. I mean, you're literally, she's being asked for her last Now, I don't know if that sounds rude to you. It has an air about it that's a little awkward for us socially. This is a widow, Elijah. Who's the one that called him to go to the widow? God. Okay? God has commanded this widow to sustain Elijah. And I don't know how that works. I don't know what's going on in the widow's mind in all of this. If she had a dream and it's like, there's going to be a mighty prophet who's going to come to you, you sustain him. I have no idea what the preparation was on her side. All I know is we have an awkward situation, and this is you and me. God says, uh, you know that little you have? I need it. What? 
the mighty prophet has come into your life, and he says, this is what I need to ask of you. I mean, can you imagine how awkward that would be for the prophet? Okay, now, let's keep going in the story. It gets really interesting. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. What's God saying to you? Uh, Do not fear. But this is all I have. What do you mean, do not fear? How can I not fear? Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. Go and prepare your last bread, but make me a cake first. Ah, that's going to be everything. You see, if I make you a cake, there won't be anything left for me, so I might as well die now. But make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and for your son. Well, that's an interesting statement. Afterwards, make one for yourself and for your son. How am I going to do that? I don't have anything left. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. You will never lack, but you obey. You must trust that the Lord God of Israel has spoken. He will sustain you. You're looking at how much you have in the jar. You're looking at how much you have, how much oil you have left. You're saying that only equals one meal. What is God saying to you? Make me a small cake first. You walk in obedience and you make the cake for God first. And what will happen? There'll be an endless supply of everything you will need. It doesn't say that she ate like royalty. She probably had flour and oil till the rain came. Not the most exciting of foods. However, God used this woman to sustain the mighty prophet in and through a drought. That is extraordinary. And in a time of drought, what is God going to use? He's going to use the widow. Us, the church of Jesus Christ, to sustain the glory of Almighty God in this generation. To uphold the truth of God in a generation. He's going to use us. It's preposterous. It really is. So, when she, so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now most of us are like, well, yeah, that's Old Testament. And it's useful for training in righteousness and for doctrine. You know that? That's actually the Christ life right there. You learn from this. This is the life of faith. That out of weakness comes strength. So what we have is, let's move forward. That was chapter 16, I think. No, that was 17. Oh, this is just later... There's another story with the widow. I was going to move to the time of rain, but I I added a little more from that story. Right when you think that's hard, God amps it up to another degree. Listen to this story. This is a really hard one. And I I wrestled with this one this this week because it, it really is a poignant one. Now, it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. Now, her husband has died. What is her lone source of sustenance moving forward? Her son. She has a son. And that son can be useful for, to get work, to run a farm potentially. I mean, this, this guy has a strong back and he can work. What happens? It says, the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness, speaking of the sons, was so serious that there was no breath left in him. What a funny way of saying it. He died. The sickness was so extreme that the son died. Now, I skipped some parts just to emphasize here. You can read the story. I didn't change it. And Elijah said to her, 
Give me your son. And that's the reason I wanted to emphasize that, because what do we have? We have our spike nard, our nardos. We have the thing that we lean upon. And what does the mighty prophet say? Give me that. Give me your son. How hard is it to trust that which you love, that which you've leaned upon, that which you found hope in, to give it over to God? It says that, uh, it says, give me, give me her, your son. So he took him out of her arms. Where was her son? Can't you just see her weeping, holding, clinging to the last vestige of her son? No, no, don't leave me. Don't leave me. No. How many of, the, of us does this fit? Oh, I can't give this up. But it's dying. And God's saying, give it to me. Come on. Give it up to me. Now listen to this. And Elijah took the child and brought him down. Now, so Elijah takes him up to his room, falls upon him, prays three times. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. You see, we have a confidence in something. And this could be translated in so many different ways in our life. Sometimes we just need to die to something so that God can bring it back to us consecrated. It might be a talent that you have. It might be money. And you need to give up your money so that you can get it back and it doesn't hold you anymore. I don't know what it is. That's between you and God. But many of us need to give up something and it needs to die. And we need to fully relinquish it into the hands of the mighty prophet and say, I trust you. I trust you. I don't know what you're going to do with a dead body, but you take it. And gave him to his mother and Elijah said, see, your son lives. Let God Deal with every dimension of your life. And I, if I could inject something into this message, it would be let him go deeper than you're allowing him to go right now. Let him permeate any shadowy area in your life. Those areas you're like, no, 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 don't touch that. Why are you fighting it? Those areas are dead. They have no life and they cannot truly support you. In a time of drought, they will prove meaningless. But if you go to Jesus in a time of drought, you will find an endless supply. Out of weakness. Who through faith were made strong out of weakness. Listen to this line. I just want you to meditate upon it. I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. What? It is preposterous. It really is. I have commanded a widow woman to sustain thee. Not the king, like the king. I will force Ahab to give you out of his bounty. No, it's a widow woman. And I've commanded her to sustain thee. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. This is very interesting. So we're outside the temple. So he's sitting opposite the treasury, which is at the far end of the temple, just uh, sort of like a, almost like a cap to the Holy of Holies. And so and now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. So he's watching. You know that Jesus observes these things? Which is a really interesting thought that Jesus knows the giving that we have in our life. That he knows what we're holding on to and what we're letting go. He can see into hearts. This, this story shows it. He literally has this one woman that walks by. He knows that the rich are giving out of their, their wealth. And he knows that this one woman, this widow, he knows she's a widow. And he knows that she's giving out of her poverty. How would he know that? Well, how does he know us? It's Jesus. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites. I almost named, named this message two mites. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites 
which makes a, makes a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, and she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Who does that? You see, it's someone that knows where their sustenance comes from. It is very difficult to give what you have left. If you have a thousand, it's it's hard to give nine hundred. Don't get me wrong; that's hard. But you know what? If you have a hundred, it's harder to give a hundred than it is to give nine hundred out of a thousand because you're giving everything. You know that if you have five dollars left, you know how hard it is to give the five dollars away. It's nearly impossible. And yet, I don't care what you have. God needs to bring us to a point of poverty so that he can bring us to a point of spiritual wealth. And many of us have some confidence at some level in something outside of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is wooing us, saying, are you willing to turn your back on that? Are you willing to break that open on me? This is the gospel. Anything that you turn to to find satisfaction, to find salvation, to find security in, outside of Jesus, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. The bad thing is that you're finding confidence in it. It's the pastikos. The spike nard isn't bad. There's nothing wrong with spike nard. Jesus wasn't saying, get that stuff off me. It's good. It was a good thing that she was giving. But it was that it held her and her confidence was in it. That's the root of the problem. You know that money isn't the problem? It's the love of money that's the problem. It's the subservience to money. It's the trust in money. That's the problem, not the money. And so when the root is dealt with, then suddenly God can bring back the son to us and say, your son lives. Most of us just want us to declare, have God declare, it lives right now. Why do I have to go through the death of it? Why do I have to go through that? Giving in scarcity. When something is scarce, what a strange time to give. When resources are scarcest, pour out that which you do have. Okay, now, I just made a statement here that's preposterous. And I know it. When I was writing it down, I knew it sounded preposterous, but I still wrote it down. When resources are scarcest, Pour out that which you do have. Uh, Why would you make a cake with your last flour and with your last bit of oil in a time of drought? I mean, this woman, could you imagine even how she was feeling about her last cake? Her last cake. And I mean, this last flour and this last oil is treasured. I mean, that's treasure to her. And what does God put his finger on? Make me a cake first. Out of scarcity, pour out that which you do have. Okay, this is, now we're in the next chapter, 18. 1 Kings 18. And there was a sore famine in Samaria. That's, that was the capital city of Israel. So you had Judah and Israel, and the capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. The capital city of Israel was Samaria. And there was a sore famine in Samaria, and that's where Ahab and Jezebel lived. Okay? And so we have the statement at the very beginning of the chapter saying, you know what, things are going really bad. It hasn't rained for three and a half years, and there is a sore famine. They're literally searching the land to see if there's any green, if there's any water, any. In all the land, can you find any? Okay, this is a bad situation. Now, if there's a famine in the land and there's a drought, how much do you think water is worth? Do you think it's probably fairly valuable? All right, I want you to remember that as we go into the story. We have Elijah who, because of his position, the fact that he has prayed and 
for three and a half years it hasn't rained. Ahab has been trying to hunt him down. But Ahab can't kill Elijah. Why? Because Elijah is the only one with the key to unlock the heavens. And so Ahab's in a tough situation. He wants to kill this prophet, but he can't until the man prays and gets the rain back, and then he can kill him. And so as a result, Ahab is subservient to Elijah, and so Elijah's calling all the shots. Have all the nation of Israel gather together. You get all the prophets of of Baal and of the grove. You bring them up to the top of Mount Carmel, and we'll have a little testing here. And this is literally where he says, the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And call you on the name of your gods. He's saying to the the prophets of Baal, you call on Baal. You call on Baal, and I will call on the name of the Lord and let the the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now, we were, we were spending time as the staff and interns the other day, and I don't remember all the circumstances that led to this thought, but someone was praying about fire coming before rain. And I had the thought that it's like, what an interesting statement. First of all, with what's going on in Colorado here, uh, because we didn't have rain at that time. It was, this was, we were severe drought with extreme uh, fires at the time. But the fire needs to come before the rain. And... If you can think of one thing that you wouldn't want to call down from heaven after three and a half years of drought, what would it be? Fire. Uh, We don't need fire here. And yet, what is the test? The God that answers by fire, let him be God. I mean, everything is so dry. Uh Uh-huh. He needs to burn up all the chaff. He needs to burn up everything that can be burned. Judgment begins at the house of God. We need fire, but we must cry out. I mean, we need water, but we must know our need for it. God will bring us to that point where everything is being charred away so that we cry out and we will not stop. We need rain! That's the way I feel in my soul. The church of Jesus Christ has, is lifeless in so many regards. We need rain! Come, Lord Jesus, rain upon your people again. We need you. We're in a drought. So... The prophets of Baal make their attempt. They call all day, cut themselves, dance around on the altar. Nothing happens. And it's Elijah's turn. And it says, And with the stones he, Elijah, built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid him on the wood. And said, okay, now see if you can fully fathom the significance of this. Now it's a time of famine and drought. How expensive is water? Well, it's about as valuable of a commodity as exists. And so as a result, it's value. I mean, only kings could probably afford it right now. Look at this. Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And then they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar. And he filled the trench also with water. Can you say, what a waste? You see, this story isn't just showing, amping up the fact that it's difficult to consume a moist sacrifice. This is dumping out the most precious thing in all of Israel on the altar of Jehovah. Who are they feeding first? You want rain to come back? Who do you give the cup of water to first? In this situation, you put it on the altar. You put it on the sacrifice. You give your lone last cup of water to Jehovah. 
And this is an amazing story. Just wait till you, I hope I have it here. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed, which means, by the way, it's the same word for devoured and ate. It's a symbol of the mouth. It consumed the burnt sacrifice and wood and the stones and the dust and licked, which is the term of the tongue, actually lapping water, and licked up the water that was in the trench. The symbol here, just right after the story of Elijah saying, give me the first cake, give me the water, and give me the bread. Then all of Israel, they set a bull on the altar. They dump the water around it and say, here, God. And even the terminology used is one of a mouth eating and lapping up the water. It's a meal, if you will. Who's fed first? God. Okay, now follow closely. Because I know you're like, how rude that he would ask for it first. He says, give me the little you have. Do you trust me? So we have God. I mean, if we pour this out and you don't come through, we have nothing. Well, what's, why are you even thinking he's not going to come through? Faith. Faith. Who will come through? You want rain. Give up the little barrels of water that you have. You're like, that's a lot. Twelve barrels of water and filling the trench. That is so much that's asking for too much, God. You want the abundance of rain or not? If you want the abundance of rain, you pour out everything upon the altar. Do you trust that I am he? That I am God? So he licked up the water that was in the trench, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink. Listen, for there is a sound of an abundance of rain. Why are you worried about 12 barrels and filling up a trench when there's going to be an abundance of rain that quickly follows? Elijah knew it. He knew what was coming. When you see the treasure, you'll sell all. But most of us haven't seen the treasure. And as a result, we can't sell all. Because we don't have the confidence that we're going to have the rain. So we hold on and hoard our 12 barrels. And as a result, the fire never comes down from heaven and laps it up and proves to the world that the Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Which of us is willing to give up the 12 barrels? To say, I want the rain. This is a hard one, I know. I have to wriggle with it too. It touches us at the deepest point, and most of us say, That's a waste, that's a waste. And who are we agreeing with? We're agreeing with Judas of Iscariot. It is not a waste to pour it out on Jesus Christ. First things first if you need bread, give up the little meal you have. If you need rain, give up the little water you have. If you need energy, give up the little energy you have. If you need strength, give up the little strength you have. If you need time, give up the little time you have. If you need God, give up being a God in your own life. If you need life, give up your life. It's the principle of the kingdom right there. But God, can't I have it with my 12 barrels and then you start raining? Then I'll be happy to give up my 12 barrels. Because you know you can fill them right back up. 
See, this is a tension of soul, and what does it demand? It demands faith in the one who brings rain. It demands faith in the one who supplies the aquifer. I can't, I can't dip into my puddle. That's all I have. Dump your puddle on the altar. Feed God first. You give to God and you pour it on the altar. And the world will know that there is a God in Israel. What follows? The abundance of rain. Now this is a compilation. You'll see the scripture uh, collection down at the bottom. This is Jesus talking. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Whoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. He who gives up his water will find a rain. He who gives up his bread and his meal and his flour and his oil will find an endless supply. Ah! We want it! That we can keep it and get it! But you have to give it to get it. Ah! That's a tension, isn't it? Grace of God is what's needed to make a decision on this matter. You know that you are, it seems like, surgically attached to your 12 barrels. And if God's asking you right now, some of you are saying, I agree with what Eric's saying. I mean, how can you argue? It's just what it says. But you're surgically attached. It's sort of like you can't even get away. It's like a Siamese twin. You're just grafted with skin and everything. It's just there. It's not as easy as just going, oh, yeah, I'm going to leave this because it goes with you. And it's actually pulling you this way. You need a surgical instrument known as Jesus Christ, the grace of God, to sever your attachment and your faith. Your faith is in this. That's where your confidence is. This can save you. That's what you're putting your confidence in, and that's where you're finding salvation. And God says, will you repent? And by the grace of God, you repent. If, if there's people in here that need to sever, ask God to sever it. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't know if I want to pray that. Because I can always use it as a justification. I could, just couldn't sever it, God. And that doesn't work before the throne because he's given you everything you need to be severed. From your past loves. From that which you've once confided in, that which you've once trusted in. Turn, repent by the grace of God and say, God, I put my confidence in you. I need rain. I need bread. I need strength. I need God. I need life. And I cannot find it over here. And I make an agreement that you were right about that. You've judged these things. This is false. This is a counterfeit. But you are the real thing. And I turn from that to the counterfeit. And I put my confidence in you. Dump out the precious barrels of water during the drought. And the abundant rains will surely follow. Philippians 3. This is Paul talking. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What's the circumcision? The circumcision are those that have come to Jesus, entered into Christ, and the flesh has been cut off. What is, what is the propensity inside of you that causes you to look at the 12 barrels? It's the flesh. It's self-sufficiency. It's self-security. You do not want to have to find your sufficiency in Jesus Christ. That's painful. You have to die to you to do that. But we are the circumcision. We are the ones that have been cut off from the fleshly instinct and yearning to find some answer to our life's dilemma outside of Jesus. To find the answer in ourselves. We are the circumcision. And have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. So he's basically saying, you see, we no longer have confidence in the 12 barrels. We're the circumcision. 
And then Paul says, look, if anyone could have confidence in the 12 barrels, it would be me. If anyone could have confidence in something to save outside of Jesus Christ, hey, I'm one of them, says Paul. If any other man thinketh that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law. Blameless. But what things were gained to me, these barrels that were my confidence and that I thought of gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. All things. Not just that short list, but all things. Turn your back and repent. And you say, I count it loss. Jesus is my sufficiency. Jesus is what I brag in. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung. That's a pretty extreme statement on your little pile of 12 barrels and your your meal and your oil. He considers it nothing, worthless, that I may win Christ. Obviously, he's in contrast. He's saying, this is dung next to what I'm going after, guys. I'm going after a pearl of great price. It's a treasure hid in the field. And if you saw it, you would understand, this is dung. Don't put your confidence here. That I may win Christ and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. I figured this would be a good meditation, just to finish on. If any of you are struggling, because I know the struggle, you're leaving looking to yourself to surrender. And you're saying, do I have it in me to surrender? You're looking like you're 12 barrels saying, do I have enough here to be able to turn and give to God? You literally have to make a choice to say, I need my God to even turn from this. Just cry out to your God. Just say, no more confidence in the flesh. My confidence is in Jesus Christ. You make a proclamation of soul today. This body, no longer yours. Your life, no longer yours. Your resources, no longer yours. They belong to Jesus. He'll take care of you. You have to trust that. All the men in here that are saying, but I have to provide for my home. God knows that. He's not going to commission you to do something and not supply you to do it. He will give you that which you, is, you need for life and godliness. Your job is to believe. Take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. I just want us to be bent. I want us to call out for our God. We need the God of grace. We need rain. And we need it desperately. If you've been in a drought for many years, 
I can tell you there's only one solution for that drought, and it's Jesus Christ. Hoarding your 12 barrels is not going to solve it. Your 12 barrels will ultimately run out. Dump it on the altar. Feed God first. Can you give him a cup of water today? You say, I only have one cup left. Give it to God. Let him supply for us. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.